all the heavens, that he might fill and fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. Just from this passage, the first part of Ephesians chapter 4, today I'd like to talk about the markings of a worthy walk. The markings of a worthy walk. Um, whenever I'm booking a flight... I always like to look for non-stop flights. I mean, I, I, I just, I don't, I don't care much for layovers or having to catch a connecting flight. I, I, I don't care much for that. My preference when I'm booking a trip is non-stop. There are too many potential problems that exist that could arise when you have to have a layover or catch a connecting flight, like, for instance, your connecting flight could be delayed, and when you get to the connecting airport, your flight could have already left, and you could miss it. Uh, baggage, it, it can always be lost, <laughs> but there's a higher risk of it being lost uh, when you have to connect, right? Uh, you could arrive at your connecting airport and the flight that you were hoping to catch to connect to your destination could have been canceled. It happened to us. We left going to Japan, left Dallas, and arrived in San Diego. When we got to San Diego, they informed us that our flight to Tokyo had been canceled. So we had to stay overnight. There's, there's a greater risk of these things happening when you have to catch a connecting flight. But there are, there are some, so, so my preference is non, non-stop, right? But there are some destinations that are impossible to get to, like Tokyo, without catching a connecting flight. For instance, how many of you know that it's impossible to travel from Tyler to New York City non-stop unless you have a private plane. If you're traveling on a commercial airline, Brother Kimmy, you can't go nonstop from Tyler to New York City. It just is not, it's not a possibility. It, 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 it's because airlines operate on what's called the hub and spoke system. Uh, they do this for efficiency. It just doesn't make good business sense. It's not efficient. Uh, for flights to go from smaller places to all over the place without connecting somewhere. So they have this hub and spoke system. So there are several 
airports uh, across the country known as hubs like DFW, like uh, the busiest airport at last time I heard in the world was, or at least in this country, Atlanta's Hartsfield Airport. I think it still holds that distinction. Airports like Chicago's O'Hare, like New York's LaGuardia, all these uh, LAX are, are hubs uh, in the system. Uh, flights from smaller cities fly into these hubs where connections are made to destinations all over the world. These inbound and outbound flights are the spokes in the hub and spoke system. So if your final destination was New York City and you departed from Tyler, the first leg of your trip would be to a hub where you would make a connection, a transition. You'd have to change planes for the second leg of your trip in order to reach your destination. Well, you know I was going to tie this in somehow. If we saw the journey through Ephesians as a flight piloted by Paul. Our final destination would not be New York City. Our final destination would be love for God and for fellow saints. This is Paul's goal. This is our destination. And for efficiency and effectiveness, there are two legs to this flight. We have now completed our first leg and it's time to catch our connecting flight in order to eventually arrive at our intended destination. For the first leg of the, of the flight, the, the, the plane was called illumination. And for the second leg of the flight, the plane will be called application. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 tells us how God sees us in Christ in the heavenlies. Chapters 4 through 6 will remind us of how men should see Christ in us. On earth. Say that one more time for those of you that might have fallen asleep already. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 tells us how God sees us in Christ in the heavenlies. Chapter 4 through 6 will remind us of how men should see Christ in us on earth. So, so far, Paul has given us a thorough lesson on doctrine or, or orthodoxy. And the sobering reality is that the more we know the truth and believe it, the greater our responsibility is to live it out. Head knowledge must become heart experience. Integrity in our walk, in our daily walk should be of the utmost importance for the believer. We should desire to have some integrity or consistency with who we say we are and who we really are. So as we begin this second and final leg of our journey, 
Our pilot Paul begins to unpack some of the markings of a consistent Christian walk for us. And he opens it with one that is central to the message of Ephesians. He opens it with this mark. One of the first marks are, in fact, it may be the most important one, is that as believers, we should have this desire to maintain unity. Maintain unity. He covers it in verses 1 through 6. Verse 1 says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He says, he says, walk worthy of the calling. So, so, so what does he mean by this? What, what is he getting at? What, what is our pilot Paul trying to drive home to us? It is this. Our calling is a general calling to be disciples, followers of Jesus. That's our calling. This is our vocation. It is what we've been called to do. It is how we honor God. They, uh, the way we walk, our our lifestyle, the way we live our life. When he talks about walking, it's talking about the way we live our lives, right? It, it, it's how, how we live our daily lives. It must be worthy of the one who has called us to follow him. This high calling that we have, this, this high calling that we have should inspire us to our very best. It should daily inspire us to that. It's what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. You remember it. Here's what he says. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We have this high calling that should daily inspire us. So he says we should walk worthy of this calling. And then in order to help us to know what that looks like, he gives us next in verse 2 some Christ-like character traits so that we can hopefully hopefully accomplish what he's called us to do in verse 1. Verse 2 says this, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. But these are Christ-like. So when you read this list, it really reminds you or it should of Christ because Christ epitomizes all of these traits. And if we're going to walk worthy, this is how we will accomplish it. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Jesus himself demonstrates these traits, humility and gentleness. He consistently treated people with gentleness, even while he healed them with God's power. In fact, Jesus' humility was attractive. It drew people to him, the fact that he was such a humble servant. It was attractive to those who who saw it. It's the reason why he had this great following. It wasn't just the amazing things. Uh, It seems that way. It seems that they were drawn to the miracles. But I submit to you that there was more going on than that. I submit to you there was something about Jesus 
Something more than just the outward uh, things that he did. It was something about his character that was this humbleness about him, this humility about him that drew people to him. It's what he talks about in Matthew chapter 11, that all familiar verse where he says in, in, in 28 and 29, Come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Our Christ-like gentleness that we should have, we should, we should emulate this quality, this character trait. Our Christ-like gentleness should lead us to be long-suffering with others. Now, I know that's difficult. It's hard to do. Somebody should have said amen. Y'all looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know it's hard to be long-suffering with folks. Yeah, amen, somebody. And here is what it means. This is the reason why it's so hard, because it means that you should patiently endure prolonged irritation. Oh, that just hurts me to even say that. Because <laughs> that's hard to do. It's hard. It, but but long-suffering and patience mean that you should do that. You should be willing to patiently endure irritation. The love which we have for one another should prompt us to put up with the sometimes annoying idiosyncrasies of our fellow Christians. Sometimes it can be annoying. But long-suffering and patience means that we should be willing to do it uh, without irritation or without annoyance, but with patience and endurance, meeting every harassing trial that comes in fellowship with others. And whenever you are in fellowship with others, there will be some of that. More than two of y'all should have said amen right there. Because some of y'all are the, are the source. <laughs> not, not, not anybody in here. Maybe some folks online. I don't know. Not no. <laughs> But, but it, 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 it causes us, it, it, dry, it should lead us to do that. Uh, Long-suffering is a persistent spirit that is so strengthened by Christ that it outlasts the pain of provocation. Christ strengthens us to be able to outlast it. To be, you, have you ever wondered how you were able <laughs> to do it? I mean, have there been somebody that, I mean, you know, just kind of worked your, now, your last nerve? <laughs> and you wondered, how did I not just totally lose it? It's, it's the Christ in you. <laughs> it should be. But I know at the same time, you may be also saying, why did I go off? <laughs> so maybe it wasn't, maybe, maybe, you didn't, maybe you didn't submit to the Christ-like character trait that all of us ought to have, but we should have that on the inside. Uh, Dr. H.A. Ironside has something interesting to say about this. He says it this way. He says, it's lovingly putting up with all that is disagreeable in other people. Lovingly putting up with all that is disagreeable in other people. It does not mean that you have to necessarily agree with things that people do. 
does not mean that. It doesn't mean that you have to be blind to the shortcomings of others or the sinful acts of others, but simply that we have the love and patience of Christ in our attitude toward them. Are y'all going to let me come back next week? Y'all looking at me like, he ain't, no, I can't do this. <laughs> this is our pilot, not me. Our pilot is talking. Paul says that we ought to do this, right? That we should, we should have long suffering. Uh, so, so then he moves on. He talks about these Christ-like character traits that, that, that lead us and help us to maintain unity. Then we get to, to verse 3. And it's where we get it. It's, verse 3 says this, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He starts it with saying these, these words, these three words, eager to maintain the unity. So here it is. God is not looking for us to make unity, but to maintain the unity that already exists. He's not depending on us to create this unity because he's already done it. Uh, if, if you think I'm making it up, let me share with you just uh, a couple of chapters ago what Paul writes about this very subject. He says in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's already created the unity. Our responsibility is to maintain it. So the natural question that arises is how do we do that? How do we go about maintaining this unity that already exists? Because we get a lot, of, a lot of talk about, you know, division and uh, all the stuff, especially in 2020 and 2021. A lot of, so we talk about, you know, us as Christians shouldn't act that way. We shouldn't operate that way. We shouldn't see things that way because Christ has already done it for us. We should, we, we, we are already brought together as one. We should, we shouldn't, but the problem is, is that we have decided oftentimes not to either receive it or walk in it in, in the work that Christ has already done. It already exists. We don't have to do the work, Brother Kimmy. It's already been done. All we have to do is maintain it. So how do we maintain it? Well, Paul covers it in another letter that he writes to the church at Philippi. Chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 8. Here is what he says. Here is how we maintain this unity. He says this, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and, on, and of one mind. Do nothing from, from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I love the King's English. The King James says, let this mind 
be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. That's how I memorized that verse. Anyway, this is how we maintain this unity. Who, and then it tells you what he did. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is how we maintain the unity that Christ has already provided, is we are Christ-like in in how we live our lives. That's how we do it. What though, what, what is this unity that we are to maintain? J.D., you're fine. Let, let the baby, I'm not, that baby is not bothering me. Let the baby cry. It's all right. That, that, that's, yeah, that's wonderful. I love it. Amen. What is this unity? What is this unity that we are to maintain? Well, Paul tells us exactly what it is. It's the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. It, what is this? It, 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 what is it? What does that look like? It's not just ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill type. It's not the unity that immediately comes to mind when we think of unity. Because our unity, when we think of unity, it, it's more of a superficial type of unity. It is, it's not this. This unity is the unity of the Spirit. What does that mean? It began for the church on the day of Pentecost, and it comes about as a result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is oneness of mind, oneness of heart, oneness of will. It is a spiritual fellowship of those who share the same life, the same purpose, and the same power. That's not ordinary unity. That is, that is the unity of the Spirit. Uh, being eager to maintain this unity is the central marking of a worthy walk. Being eager to maintain it, not eager to destroy it, right? Eager to maintain it is, is the central mark of a worthy walk. Now, now Paul goes into, after this, he goes into more detail about what this unity looks like and the intricacies of how we are bound together. He urges us to look at the things which unite us rather than the things which divide us. So it's coming up now in verses 4 through 6. Because in verses 4 through 6, he's going to give us the seven ties that bind. Seven ties, at least seven ties that bind, bind all of us together. He's going give to give them to us in these next three verses. Uh, verse 4 says this. There is, there's a lot of ones in, this, in these three verses, by the way. It's a good thing. When you see one, it's always a good thing, right? So he says this. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. That belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So let's look at individually, one by one, these seven ties that bind us all together. That, listen, you need to know this. 
All of us have these things in common. If you are a child of God, if you are a member of the body of Christ, a part of God's kingdom, we share at least these seven things together. Maybe I don't look like you and you don't look like me and you don't talk like I do and I don't talk like you do and we're not from the same place and we don't have the same background. All of that may be true, but these seven things, at least, Brother John, we have in common. Here's the first one. We have one body. We are one body, rather. Paul says it best in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12. He says it best when he says that we are one body with many members. The living members of this body have been called out of every nation, of every tribe, of every tongue. They differ in nationality, in race, in language, in economics, in education, in personality, in abilities, and even in perspectives. But through the blood of Christ, they are, we are one in him. All of us are one in him. We are one body in him. Then he says, not only do we share this commonality, this, uh, 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 th this thing together, this oneness together. Also, another tie that binds is this one spirit idea. One spirit. He says, one body, one spirit. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended uh, to form the body of Christ. He then made his dwelling in the church as well as in the hearts of the believers. As a result, all Christians are sealed, possessed, and indwelt by the same spirit. If we don't share anything else, we share the fact that we're one body and we share one spirit. All of us are possessed. I know you thought, you know, I, I knew it was something with you. <laughs> yeah, we are all, we're all possessed, but we're possessed in a good way because we have this spirit that dwells on the inside of all of us. Not only that, one hope. One hope. We all share a common hope, the hope of his calling. Paul writes about it in chapter 1, verse 18, when he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? The full enjoyment of blessings, of the blessings which God has brought about in Christ. We share that together. It's also in chapter 1, verse 3, when Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have one hope. Your hope ought to be my hope. My hope ought to be your hope. Our hope ought to be the same. Amen. And can I just tell you what my hope is? My hope is built. Y'all help me out. On nothing less than Jesus' blood. And his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, somebody ought to yell that with me. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the, I hope ought to be the same. All of the ground is sinking sand. 
Uh, our hope should be the same, and it is, but not only that, but we have one Lord. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. We have one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who redeemed us by his blood and who is the head of the church. He is in a class all by himself. Not just Lord, he is Lord of Lords. There's no one like him. <laughs> Nobody like him. In fact, just the mention of his name invokes supremely deferential descriptions and designations. Just mentioning his name creates this awesomeness of thought. It creates these supreme designations just to mention his name. I love what St. Bernard of Clairvaux says about Jesus' name. He says this, the name of Jesus is not only light, but it's also food. It's also oil without which all food of the soul is dry. It is salt without whose seasoning whatever is set before us is insipid. Finally, it is honey in the mouth, melody in the ear, rejoicing in the heart, and at the same time, it's medicine. We have one Lord, and he's all of that. Just a mention of his name. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, and then one faith. One faith. The divine standard of truth as revealed in the New Testament, which embodies the Christian doctrine, once for all delivered unto the saints, this faith as essential salvation, and which is the very foundation of the unity in the body of Christ, this faith that we share. Not your faith, my faith, but the faith. The faith, the Christian faith. We, we have one faith. We have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Here's what Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. He says this, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We have it in common. And then lastly, he says, of the seven things that are the ties that bind us. One God and Father. One God and Father. He is sovereign God who is able to also be Abba Father. Sovereign God and Abba Father who chose and predestined us as his adopted children through Jesus to be his habitation on earth. He is above all. He is through all. He is in all. And so we have these seven ties that bind us together as we look to maintain the unity that God has already given. So then we transition from the mark of being willing to maintain unity to understanding that there is unity in diversity. I know it seems, it seems like contradiction. But there is unity in diversity. It's in verses 7 through 11. I want to read just verse 7 for right now. It says this, but grace was given to each. Grace was given to each one 
of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul begins here, begins verse 7 with, with the word but. This word but, which signifies a shift in thought, a shift in thought. Uh, once Paul has established the groundwork for the unity of the church, now he goes on to explain the diversity within the body. It, there's a shift here, unity, diversity, but they go together, right? There's this shift. What follows here is a reminder that unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean uniformity. We don't all, as you can just see, we don't all look uniform. Right? That's, that's not unity. Unity does not equate to uniformity. That's not the, that's not the idea. Uh, as it relates to spiritual gifts, there is a divinely determined diversity. In the divinely determined purpose, the divinely purpose unity in the body of Christ. There is a divinely determined diversity in the divinely purposed unity. In the body of Christ. Uh, in verse 8. And so, so before I move to verse 8. He, he's, he, he's dealing with. Uh, these various diverse gifts. That we have. There's a diversity of things. That we have been blessed with. Right. And so we can be united. And diverse at the same time. We can have different gifts, different talents. We can look different. We can act different. We can come from different places. All of that's true, but we can still be united. Verse 8, Paul begins his discussion of spiritual gifts here in verse 8. In verse 8, here's what it says. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In verse 8, he begins this discussion about spiritual gifts. He uses uh, the figure of a military victory possession, uh, procession rather, where the conquering general leads the prisoners of war through the streets of the capital and distributes gifts to his subjects from what they have conquered. In fact, what he does is he quotes from Psalm 68 verse 18. It says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. It's David talking there, and uh, Paul quotes that passage from the Old Testament, the book of Psalms. If we were to carry through the analogy, Paul doesn't, by the way, but if we were to carry it through, the conquering general in this case uh, is, the victor is the victorious Christ. The captives are perhaps the vanquished spirits of the evil one, and the gifts are the spiritual empowerment to build up and perfect his body, the church. And so this is what Jesus does. He, he is the captor, he is the victor, and he is providing gifts to the church, diverse gifts to the church. And then in verses 9 and 10, uh, here's what it says. Let me read it first. Verses 9 and 10 say this. In saying, he ascended. What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lowest regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might feel all things. Now, verses 9 and 10 are a parenthesis that 
interprets the word ascended in the quotation from Psalm 68, 18. Paul sees the ascension as the resurrected Christ's ascension into God's presence and glory as opposed to his descent. Now we talk about descent. There's a lot of views on what actually Paul means here. There's at least three views on what Paul means by descent. I want to share them, the three of them with you, and then I'll share an opinion from someone who gives their opinion on who, what they think it is. My personal opinion is it really, frankly, doesn't really matter. <laughs> but just for those of you who are intellectuals, not that I could offer you anything, because you probably already know this <laughs> if you are an intellectual. But for those of you who want to think through this, and maybe you haven't heard that there are three varying opinions on this, I want to share those with you so that you can uh, consider these opinions in your own heart and in your own mind. So there are at least three uh, uh, varying views. One says this, Christ, is, it, 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 it's talking about, that, that Paul is talking about Christ's incarnation, right? Uh, his descent to the earth from heaven. That's one view, that it's talking about Christ's incarnation, him coming from heaven to earth. That's what descending means. The second view is, is talking about Christ's descent into Hades between his death and his resurrection. That's one view, that he descended into Hades between death and resurrection. The third view is that Christ's death and his burial in the grave is what's referred to when it talks about his descent. Now, you can kind of make up in your own mind which one of those uh, you, you, you fall in line with. I'm going to just share with you Harold Honer's view of it. Doesn't mean it's right, but I'll share with you what Honer says. He says the third view is the best because it fits the context in, uh, in his death Christ had victory over sin and redeemed those who would be given as gifts to the church. That's what he believes is going on there. That descending means that uh, he descended, uh, his descent was when he was buried in the grave, in the tomb, right? Again, I don't want to get too deep into that and caught up in all, because really, listen, it doesn't really, it doesn't really, it doesn't really, okay. <laughs> don't get all bent out of shape over, right? Over, over. So, so, but I did want to share that with you. Uh, so, that's what's going on there is uh, Paul quotes Psalm 68 and talking about how Jesus, however you view ascent and descent, there's no question about ascent because we know that the ascent is when he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now sits making intercession for us. The only question is what does it mean by descent and for me it doesn't matter because the fact of the matter is that he won the victory and when he won it, wherever he won it, however he won it, that then he presented in that victory gifts to the church. That's all that matters. And so he begins to talk about the gifts that he presented to the church in verse 11. Paul covers it in verse 11. Here's what verse 11 says. And he gave, that's, this is Jesus, right? Jesus gives this. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. That's what he gave. According uh, to, to, to some commentators, this verse is a commentary on the second part of the quotation in verse 8. Namely, Christ giving gifts to Christians. The gifts to the church are gifted people. There are five kinds of gifted people listed. Can I give them to you real quick? 
Paul has already given them to you, but can I just expound on it a little bit? First uh, type of gifted person that Jesus gives to the church are apostles. An apostle. Apostle is a Christ-designated messenger, given authority to speak for him and to establish his church, establish his church, which means that it's not likely that there are any that exist today. Sorry to bust your bubble because I know on your business card. I'm just messing with you. Anyway. (laughs) Apostle, right? That's that's what he gives. And then next, he gives prophets. Hopefully you don't have that on your business card. But anyway, ain't going to mess with nobody. Here's the the definition. Here's what apostle is. Uh, Revealers of God's will for the church. Providers of edification, exhortation, and comfort. Prophets. Then, after that, he says he provided evangelists. Who are evangelists? Now, you can have that on your business card. Hopefully, you, if it's not on your business card, it's at least in your heart. Because all of us have been called to evangelize, to tell others about Jesus, right? Uh, the first two are likely not you. The second one, hopefully, is you. <laughs> uh, those who engaged in spreading the gospel. Simple as that. Very simple. Those who engaged with an ED are engaged, present tense, in spreading the gospel. Then shepherds are pastors, and really it can go together. Pastor, teacher, right? Who are these people? These people are the spiritual leader of the congregation who led the flock, protected the flock, guided the flock to places where there was grass to eat and water to drink. Pastor teaching. So, so, so these gifts are given through Christ's victory to the church. But the question is, in your mind, should be, what's the purpose? What's the purpose for, this, for, the, for these gifts? Uh, it's in verse 12, the purpose for these gifts. Verse 12 says this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is the purpose for this gift, these gifts, to equip the saints for work, work, right, to equip the saints for work. The evangelist, pastor, and teacher are not commissioned by the Lord to do all the work of the church, but rather to so feed, teach, and train the saints individually that each of them be brought to spiritual maturity, thoroughly equipped to fill his place and to do his work in building up the whole body. All of us have a place to do that. And it's work. You know that it is, ministry is, 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 is work. <laughs> it's, not, it's not always easy. It's work. Uh, one of my good friends uh, who is a pastor, a church we used to go to when, even before I started preaching, and then once I did uh, start preaching, he'd always greet me. When we had it, when we met each other, he'd always greet me this way. Uh, how's the work coming? That's, where he, that's what he'd always ask me. Pastor Brown, Great Commission Baptist, every time I meet him, he instilled today, how's the work? Because he knows <laughs> his work. 
We have to know that. And not, not, just for, not just for the person who stands, not just for the person who's visible, not just for the person who's out front, but for all of us. This is work, but it is ministry, which means that it is, that it is rewarding at the same time. It's work, but it's rewarding. So then he says that. And then he closes uh, talking about if, if, if there's a final mark in this passage uh, of a worthy walk is this growth, growth. It's in verses 13 through 16. Growth is a mark of a worthy walk. Verse 13 says this, uh, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here's the question. How long do we have to do all this? <laughs> How long? Right. How long do we have to work? How long do we have to main, attempt to maintain the unity? How long? That's the question you ought to be asking. Paul answers it until we attain. Until we attain. If we haven't attained, we have to keep working. If we haven't attained all that he talks about in 13, we have to keep working. And let me just share with you, we haven't. So we had to keep working, right? Uh, but then the next question is this, for what purpose? And he covers it in 14 and 15. You can tell that he covers, he answers this question by how 14 starts. 14 starts with this, so that. That means he's getting ready to give you an answer. So, uh, per, the purpose, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's what he says is the purpose, so that. That will happen. And then rather, here's the other side of that, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. The purpose is that we would grow up into Christ. Said that we would grow up to be more Christ-like, that we would mature to be more Christ. These are the marks of a worthy walk that we would continuously, we don't want to stagnate. We don't want to go backwards. We want to continue to make progress, to mature, to grow into Christ. That we would more and more, every day when you lay down and wake up in the morning, you would look more like Christ than you did yesterday. You would act more like Christ than you did yesterday. Growth is essential. And then verse 16 Verse 16 says this, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Verse 16 simply talks about this. No matter how, how insignificant, weak, or obscure a member of the body may feel himself to be, he has or she has a part to perform. That is very essential to the spiritual health and functioning of the body as a whole. Everybody has a role, has a part to play. No matter how insignificant you may feel like it is, it is necessary and essential for us to grow into Christ. And that we might be built up in love. Uh, John Calvin has something to say about this. He says this, no member of the body of Christ is endowed with such perfection as to be able, without the assistance of others, to supply his own necessities. 
Uh, you may not know anything about Calvin, so let me hit you with a little Hezekiah Walker. A couple people know who that is. Well, there's a couple. Here's, here's what Hezekiah says. Hezekiah says, I need you. You need me. We're all a part of God's body. Stand with me. Agree with me. Because we're all a part of God's body. He says it is, it is his will that every need be supplied. We all are a part of God's body. We all have a significant role to play in the body of Christ. Uh, can I, before I sit down, can I share you, with you a story about buzzards? <laughs> buzzards uh, have this tendency to dance at times. They've even been called dancing birds. Uh, there was a in very interesting article written about buzzards. It said that they understand the benefits of dancing. It was reported that these robust Medium-sized birds have a habit of jumping up and down in open fields. It looks like a dance. If you ever saw it, it looks like a dance. They jump up and down, and they make noise that sounds like it's raining. And when they make this noise that makes it sound like it's raining, it drives the worms to the surface because the worms think that rain is hitting the ground. And when the worms come to the surface, the buzzers eat the worms. Here's the interesting thing. It's been known that, that to see, to catch 40 to 50 of these buzzards at one time doing this dance in the field. Here's the point. They understand uh, how it is that when you work together, that everybody benefits the more because the more of them that gather together and make the dance, the more worms come to the surface and more dinner there is. So all I'm saying is that we as a body have to learn as Paul writes here and in other places, dance together so that the entire body benefits for the glory of God. Listen, there may be someone here that doesn't know Jesus. And I want to extend to you that invitation. This is Communion Sunday, and Brother Sam is coming to give us our communion uh, meditation here and to, so we can have communion. Before he comes, I want to extend invitation. There may be someone here that doesn't know Jesus. If you are that person, would you let us know, and we'd love to pray with you and in introduce you to the Jesus that we know and love. Um, and at the same time, you can let us know. Uh, just, just let us know. Raise your hand. Uh, catch one of us after the service. We'd love to pray with you. At the same time, we'd also love to extend the invitation. Someone that may have a desire to unite with us here at Unity. I'm sorry, Unity. That's the, there's a story behind that. My wife. <laughs> so that was, uh, anyway, I don't, I, I don't have time. <laughs> Unity is our subject, by the way. But it's also the church I used to pastor. <laughs> and hope, <laughs> hope and unity, they go together. Uh, let us know and we can uh, tell you how to get that done as well. With that, we're going to uh, invite uh, one of our elders here, Brother Sam, to come and share with us so that we can partake in communion today.
I want to thank you, Pastor, for that fine message. Amen. That's what we are here to celebrate now is oneness. And he mentioned those things, oneness and unity and togetherness. Well, this is what communion is all about. Togetherness. According to the Bible, we as Christians partake in the Holy Communion in remembrance of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that was broken and provided at the cross. Taking Holy Communion does not only remind us of his suffering, but it also shows us the amount of love that Jesus Christ has for us. However, to be able to share the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, one must be born again. In other words, uh, we must have gone through a self-examination, repentance, and confession. The scripture teaches us that through Holy Communion, we are also connected with Jesus Christ, not only in the memory of his death, but in the spiritual life that he has given us. A lot of us can relate to this. Uh, how many husbands do we have in the audience? All right. All of our husbands, we can relate because we have wives. Anytime you make any major decisions, we have to go to our wives. Isn't that right, men? And vice versa. Wives, you work the same way. If you make major decisions, you have to check with your spouse. Well, Jesus is seeking that same relationship with us. Before you make any decisions, major or minor, it should be automatic that we consult our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So through our communion service here, we are stressing that relationship. At this time, we're going to partake into our taking of our bread that represents the body of our Lord and the blood that's going to represent the blood of our Lord. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus Christ on the day, excuse me, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had gave thanks... He break it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Bread of our body, excuse me, bread of our Lord. Body of our Lord. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Blood of our Lord. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father God, we come. First of all, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to share together as one.
Father, we thank you for the body, uh, the bread that represents your body. We thank you for the blood, Father, that was shed for the remission of our sins. And Lord, we thank you for this service. We ask this and all other blessings in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, thank you, Brother Sam, for leading us in communion. Uh, we are ready to go, but before we go, I want to uh, recognize any first-time visitors that we may have with us today. If you're visiting with us for the first time, would you stand and remain standing, if you don't mind? 